Welcome to The Lit Fantastic, a show about authors and their obsessions. I'm your host, Neil Aiken, and today we're speaking with poet and scholar Lynn De Silva Johnson. Lynn is an interdisciplinary creator, cultural scholar, and educator. They are a visiting assistant professor at Pratt Institute, as well as the founder and creative director of The Operating System, a radical open source arts organization and independent press. Lynn's work addresses in particular the somatic impact of trauma on persons and systems, as well as the study of resilient open source strategies for ecological and social change. And this, in fact, becomes very much the topic of our conversation today. Lynn is also co-editor of the forthcoming anthology Incorporare Sano, Creative Practice and the Challenge Body, and of Resist Much, Obey Little, Poems for the Resistance. We join the conversation as Lynn and I discuss their obsession with evolution, and we explore its ramifications, the ways in which it informs our understanding of trauma and how it manifests in the body, and how it manifests in the systems around us, the ways in which we live and the ways in which we create. I've been thinking about evolution of the human species, of individuals, of the sort of larger holobiome, which is sort of just like the entire ecological system within which each being, each sentient being, each, you know, cell is in for a really long time, right? So this is kind of like what I think about all the time. And you know, I mean, I think that it comes from that sort of early philosophical question of like, what what in the world are we doing here, right? Which I never really stopped asking. Um, and which all of my work, including my creative work, is ultimately part of. Like, I really do see, you know, the writing of poetry as an act that's sort of like a hacking. It is a creative space in which I not only use like ideas, but also use form to sort of like break my own unintentional patterning, right? So like even when I'm working like in visual materials or in text, I'm always sort of thinking about not only in content, but also in form, how the actual like experimentation of doing it can perform a sort of hack in order to ask questions about how my body has been conditioned, how my mind has been conditioned, how language has played a part of that, and to try to sort of like use that space as as an experimental practice. Um, but I also like, I also deal with that content a lot of the time too. So it, it occurs both in form as well as in topical ways. So, so there's a way in which this interest, this obsession with evolution is manifesting itself, not only as sort of topic, but also as even sort of the way in which you work or even think about language, poetry, as a type, of, like when you talk about hacking language and rethinking form, there is a way in which it seems that you're, you're suggesting that the poem itself or the written object itself is in some state of evolution or transformation. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's interesting because so frequently, I mean, in our contemporary world, and not only now, I mean, for a really long time, like, we tend to kind of be like, oh, like, what do you do? Who are you? Like, oh, I'm a writer. Or, oh, I'm a poet. I'm an artist. But I sort of, like, those words I use because they're helpful to communicate to other people and sort of, like, the ways that we categorize ourselves. But, like, really, I understand myself as sort of, like, a sentient animal that is engaged in a larger project of being here on the earth as a human and with a particular type of intelligence and as playing a role in perhaps a larger systemic process of change and growth. So like when I'm like even making work, I'm not really thinking about like, oh, am I making a poem because I'm a poet? Mm. I really feel like I ask questions of the world and of myself. And the things, the practices or disciplines that made the most sense to those questions are the ones that I went to, not the other way around, right? So it's sort mm. of like I always gravitated towards visual work. I gravitated towards language. I gravitated towards the study of people and places. And so I ended up doing, you know, urban design, anthropology, visual art, and poetry. And it's sort of like, oh, you're those things. And it's like, no, well, I'm actually this question-asking person, this question-asking body and these are the practices that we call those things that like make the most sense for me to try to experiment in this body towards this like evolutionary goal but it's really like that's my sort of like overarching umbrella and these are sort of like the mediums through which it happens like I really do like get up in the morning and I'm kind of like how can I hack the world today <laughs> you know and then I'm like oh well today Pinky we're going to make some poetry but it's, you know, it's sort of this larger, this larger framework for everything I do. So, so perhaps a, a way of thinking about that then is that you're an organism and these are your means of existing and not just existing, but actually like interacting and even transforming the environment that you're in or being transformed by the environment that you're in. The same way that we think about breathing in and out, it's just the natural extension of trying to exist in a space? Well, I mean, not necessarily, because part of what I'm doing is saying what feels natural and what doesn't, right? Mm. So, like, the question is the origin. It's sort of like, what's happening here, and how do I learn about it, and how do I become an intentional part of it, right? Mm. So some of these modes have been sort of like the finding them felt natural in a certain way. But the way in which I engage is not necessarily natural because I realize and because the body realizes that the things that do feel natural are not necessarily a space of learning, right? Mm. So I'm always trying to actually, um, this is a hacking thing, right? To move myself away from the natural in a lot of ways mm. because I feel like when I get into something that feels very smooth, I'm probably not learning, so it's kind of like your brain, like it's kind of like a car that goes over a road again and again and again. And if you're kind of not really controlling the wheel, there's a rut that's like in the road that's made by where the car wheels have gone many, many times. And so like your car will just sort of glide into that comfortable place. And it requires like real tension on the wheel to keep you away from that, right? So like I feel like a lot of my practices are like that, keeping tension on the wheel. I'm like trying to keep myself from falling into those ruts and like looking mm. for those ruts and being like, what's that? And how do I fall into that? Whether it's like the way that I speak to other people or the kind of language I tend to use or like, oh, these are words I fall into using a lot or like 
these are practices or even like when I'm walking down the street, I'm like, oh, I tend to walk this way a lot. Like, let's walk this other direction so as to have different experiences. People, I think people listen to like the same music over and over. Like I listen to different music. Like I try to constantly listen to like something new that I've never heard before. Right. And so it's kind of like, what does it mean to try to hack your own programming? So that's kind of what I'm, what I'm doing all the time. And at the same time, I'm sort of asking, how can we hack our own programming? And in, you know, in my teaching and in the world, I'm sort of saying, what are the ways in which our unintentional conditioning is causing us or influencing us to like make decisions, whether interpersonally or structurally or in community that we don't want to make? Right. So like this Mm. is really like this is where like trauma comes in too, right? So like the traumatized body is a very specific body. And many of us now are traumatized bodies, like based on the sort of there's a definition of trauma that says that trauma exists when you are in a situation and you don't feel like you have resources to address something that you need. So you're under resource and you can't help yourself. Right. And so like trauma comes from not being able to assist yourself and not they're not being resources, whether internal or external to to fix something that you need or to provide something that you need. And so like trauma, there's this, you know, this definition of trauma basically is like when that happens and you internalize that, it becomes like something that is very dangerous in your body. And if that never kind of gets unearthed and dealt with and sort of healed, then it starts to create all sorts of like even physical illness in the body. Um, So like now we live in a society where like so many of us are are in this state, right? Like there are certain groups of people that have hugely systemic compound trauma, like certain queer communities and people of color. But we're in a time right now where anyone who's kind of like within the 99% really is living in a state in which we're kind of like, there's very little that I can do for myself to solve these systemic issues that are like so present in our lives. And you also are aware, because we're in a bioprecarious state, you're also aware that your body is in danger and that you, in two days, if there was illness in yourself or in your family or, like, there was a real financial disaster, that you could be homeless and very ill and couldn't fix yourself, right? And you couldn't help yourself or your family. And that kind of, like, long-term fear lodging in the body creates things that you can't solve in a simple way you can't just solve them intellectually you have to address what's happening in the body because the body is making certain decisions about survival that are beyond what's happening intellectually so a lot of what we're seeing right now is like people having conversations that really like they're coming from a gut place of fear having to do with the body trying to support itself and so I think we even see like in activist communities or in creative communities where people are very driven by activism a lot of people who like on the surface are talking about really wanting change but then personally are really pulling back to a place where they feel like they have safety right whether Mm. it's you know not getting out of situations that are bad for them staying in relationships that are past their time staying in family situations that are really uncomfortable and like against people's beliefs because it's the place that they know that they might have monetary support if something goes south So you have all these people entrenching while intellectually they're like, change, change, change. But people aren't really going towards change because risk in a time when you already feel in danger is is for the scared animal body, right? Like something that's not something that you should do. And so this is a time in which we actually have the potential to like build all these new systems. But the traumatized body says, that's a great idea. 
someone other than me has to do it. And then I will go towards it when I know that it's safe. But that's the thing, like, you know, with like me building the operating system or something, like I'm always like, oh, come on and do this thing with me. And people are like, oh, I would love to, but I like don't have the resources, you know? And so like, I realized through that process being like, what do people mean when they don't have the resources? When I look at them, I'm like, you have the resources more than I do. But it's because I've been thinking in this way for so long and like hacking my mind out of that trauma state that I feel any comfort here because Mm -hmm. I previously felt that risk. That's how I got here. Right. So I'm now really working towards kind of trying to see like what conversations do we need to have? What kind of work do we need to have? What kind of work do we need to do together in communities to like recognize our trauma programming and get ourselves to a place where we can actually like make systemic change. And so like this is now happening like with any of the work that I'm doing. So I'm doing a lot of poetry, research, performance that like address this stuff. Mm hmm. Clearly, I, I really am obsessed with this, just like keep going on that topic. No, no, no. This is this is deeply fascinating, and I feel, as you note, I, I think the vast majority of us experience trauma. Perhaps we haven't named it, but we are, when, when I hear you talking about living in a situation or under circumstances which you do not, you feel you do not have the power to change, um... And you just have to reconcile yourself to try and, like, you have this threat or this threat of threat that hangs over you. I think that describes, you know, a large section of the population that lives with debt, um, that lives in financially precarious situations. You know, and you're right. I mean, all it takes is a couple days of illness or, like, one delayed check or something can put us all into this state of fear and can shut us down, can freeze us so that we can't do the creative work or the other work of community building that we really, perhaps intellectually, as you say, want to participate in, want to be a part of. Yeah, I mean, and I, I do think that this is particularly specific in terms of, like, the United States, right? So I'm yeah. not, like, making a global statement, right? But I, you know, something that I think is very interesting is that, like, I do feel like this has so much to do with the social infrastructures that have been removed, right? Social protections and infrastructures that, like, are pretty common in other social democracies, like, in other parts of the world, right? So, like, how differently we would be able to function with free education and healthcare, for instance, mm-hmm. right? Like, I don't travel very much because, again, like, under-resourced person, but I did get to go to Europe some years ago, and I'm kind of, like, an empathic feeler. I tend to sort of, like, feel people's emotions, like, as I walk around. And um, walking around Berlin, like, one of the things that I couldn't really put my finger on at first was a very sort of just a very different energy just in the air. And I was like, what is it that I'm feeling? What is it that I'm experiencing here? Because It's very unfamiliar to me. And it took me until I got back to the United States to recognize what I thought it was. And I'm like, you know what I think it is? I think it's like the lack of what I'm talking about. Mm. What does it feel like? to know that you have certain social supports. What kind of decisions are you making? I, I think it's so interesting to ask yourself this kind of question. Like, what if you and what if your family, like, you know, multiple generations had all these systems in place that made you able to make choices in a way that wasn't, that wasn't driven by survival, like by mm. pure survival, right? Like if you were kind of like, okay, I'm not going to have any student loan debt. If my 
you know, if someone in my family has a baby, like they're going to be able to take time to take care of that baby. Even the father, like everybody is going to be able to take time. To, you know, there's like adequate social services for certain kinds of illness. Like you're going to be able to make certain choices. There's support for the arts. Like how, like that doesn't only change just the intellectual conversations about what's going on in the country. It changes your body. Mm-hmm because it makes your decisions and your choices much less dangerous, right? So it's especially, like, as someone who came from, like, a single-parent family, like, with very little money, like, who was kind of told that I was going to be the person that was going to, like, drag us out of the financial background that we had, I always, like, was encouraged to do the arts, but the arts for me was not only that I always was told, but that became something that in my body was, like, a dangerous thing for me to pursue as a primary thing Mm. it really like it didn't even occur to me that the arts could be my primary thing that I did in my life because it was illogical it was unsafe it was risky and it was selfish to think that that would be like something that I would choose as my primary mode of being in the world right and so when we get these lessons and we know that like there isn't any like public housing or housing that's going to be available to us if we like have under a certain amount of money and if we you know, if we also, like, know that we're going to be, like, burdened with student loan debt and that we know that not only, like, isn't there public health care, but that, like, if we get sick or someone in our family gets sick and all this stuff is happening, then we're kind of like, you know, what does it mean to hold that in your body? And what does it mean to hold that in your body intergenerationally? Mm. Right. Um, and so that starts to be, like, compound trauma, you know, and compound trauma then starts to become, like, chronic illnesses, right? And this is something that, like, the allopathic medicine in the state really is very behind on understanding, but, like, trauma specialists and neurologists understand this, right? And so we're now seeing, and I don't know if you're seeing this, but, like, more and more young people um, and middle-aged adults in the U.S. are coming forward with all sorts of insane chronic illness, right? And so part of the work that I'm doing right now is sort of like, like trying to understand the ways in which this is symptomatic of the trauma of like the widespread sort of trauma that's happening for Mm -hmm. us. So there's that, but I don't, but it's not negative. Right. So I feel like for me, like this kind of learning process has been like understanding my own trauma, like, which is very real, like both from like actual, like extreme trauma situations, as well as like from abusive times in my, in my young life and like recognizing that as the source of my illnesses and working through it and being able to like heal myself that way. Right. And so I'm sort of like, okay, like I clearly needed this work and what is it, how do I see it in other people and how is our medical profession like not, not really prepared to deal with this. And then at the same time, like how does our education system and other systems like reproduce an idea of an enlightenment era mind body divide which is totally erroneous and which we know scientifically is erroneous. And yet, you know, the institutions that we're in, um, in the West, really, right, this is like a very Western thing, require us to repress and ignore the body. You know, Mm -hmm. the classroom, the labor, the workplace, like these are places where we are expected to, to trump the body and its needs or wants with the mind, right? So, like, these are really crazy ways in which we learn to punish our bodies and, like, the, and the you know, messages that we're getting from our bodies, and we learn as children to ignore these things and that part of being an adult and part of behaving 
is to ignore the, the signals from our bodies. And so instead of learning that intelligence, as we're in school and in the workplace, we learn to divide ourselves. So by the time we get to adulthood, most people are incredibly dissociated from the information that their bodies are giving them. So part of what I'm doing in my work is involving somatic practice and trying to help people to like through their poetics and through performance and through workshops to both like use writing as like a tool um, and use body as a tool to kind of like re-engage with the somatic intelligence that we like have to try to kind of break ourselves out of the traps that we're in, some of which we now reinforce for ourselves, but many of which are systemically created and then reinforced like through various institutional systems. I guess the, the next question would be, what is it that we can do if we want to you know, pers- participate in this hacking, both of our own internal system and in terms of um, how the world is currently functioning around us? How, how, what can we do? Like individually? Yeah, individually. Well, there's a lot of we, right? I mean, I I think the the sort of idea of there being a we, like who is the we? I mean, me and you, there's like the, you know, like people who are already involved in the arts, right? So, I mean, I do think that the practice of like a mindfulness any sort of mindfulness practice, like body, like awareness practice that is not only attempting to kind of like quiet the mind, right, which can actually have repercussions that are also dissociative, but that help us to like ground in our physical bodies and really attend to like our senses and our bodies is like essential, right? So like that's something that pretty much anyone can do and you don't, you know, I mean, I I do think that it's helpful to do it in community or like with some sort of guide, but you don't need it. I mean, I think that almost anyone who does it, you know, and it doesn't have to be a spiritual practice. I think that like for a lot of people, like mindfulness and meditation and things like that can kind of like feel like it's appropriative or feel like it is connected to sort of like really unappealing, like kale smoothie drinking, moon juice applying, like people of a certain type that one wants to isolate oneself from and let everybody know that they're just like a normal person who like drinks beer and has conversations like, you know. So, I mean, I think that there's kind of like this weird kickback around those sorts of practices that comes from like a lot of the like the appropriative, very unsalient, like, (laughs) ways in which those things appear in our sort of cultural imaginary. But, you know, mindfulness practices have existed in, in, you know, myriad traditions, like, across the world and in almost every, you know, religion. And I don't think that it needs to be attached to religion. I really think that these practices came from humans needing to kind of get a control over their bodies like and start to understand their bodies you know I mean it's really funny because like we go to school but we don't really understand our bodies like we don't you know I teach this class sometimes called how to human and it's tongue-in-cheek obviously but at the same time like it's real you don't really understand your body like you don't really understand what it's saying. You like most of us, right? Like there's people who do, but most of us don't because it, it's not part of our training. Like we we understand how to drive our bodies much less than we understand how to drive our cars, for instance. You know, like the equivalent of like how do you work your body has never been taught 
you. Because you can, like, stand up and start walking, it's, like, assume that you, like, can work it well enough. You know, like, it's sort of, like, the difference between learning to read and learning to read, right? Like, I think so many people, like, learn to read, and then no one, again, goes back and is, like, this is what it means to read critically, right? So, so many Mm. people are kind of, like, yeah, I can read, but it's totally different. This is totally different. So, like, can you human? Most of us, to be perfectly frank, cannot. (laughs) <laughs> we don't understand what's happening. We don't, we're not connected to our bodies. We ignore most of what they're saying because we've been taught that we can't listen to them and that we can't like understand what's happening. So like one of the first real things that we can do is really pay attention. Um, and this is really interesting. Like, you know, like even the question of asking yourself, like, how do you feel? I don't even know. It's kind of like I go to therapy and like, you know, this is something that my therapist now asks me because I'm working with this person who does this kind of practice. And I'm like, you know, my first answer is always like some sort of, cyclical answer about like what's going on in my week and he's like no you know how do you feel and it's sort of like did you answer emotionally did you answer in your body like keep going down and Mm. answering right so like things like body scans um which is like when you sort of close your eyes and you like actually put your attention like on different parts of your body to feel what you're feeling this is really you know helpful these kinds of check-ins and it seems like really super simple and like how can that get us all the way to the trauma work, it's kind of like, well, it's like the first step, like that's the door to being like, are you actually willing to listen to yourself, right? Are you actually willing to be like, I don't feel well? Mm. Like, do we feel like we have the capacity to sort of like acknowledge that like we're really exhausted, we're holding a huge amount of tension? Do we feel like we even have the resources to deal with the answers that we would get if we asked ourselves that question? And I think the answer to that question is often no. Mm. We often don't feel like we have the resources to really fix it if we ask ourselves what's wrong, right? If we're like, what's wrong? And then like you open that Pandora's box and people feel like they don't have the, you know, the resources to go that next step, right? So, you know, so that I think is where a lot of that fear comes from. You know, like asking yourself, like, oh, well, what would you want to be doing? Like, if you felt that you, if you felt that you weren't in danger, if you felt that you weren't in risk, right? So I think these are questions that we often don't ask because we feel like the, you know, like there's no way for us to actually do it. But like, I think these are actually the most important questions that we can ask. It's sort of like, if you felt that you would still be able to support yourself and that, you know, no harm would come to you. Like, and that you wouldn't be alone and that you knew you would have community. What relationships would you sever? Mm. Many of us are in relationships that are really unhealthy, like super toxic. And um, we hold on to them because we feel that we'll be alone. You know, we fear that as adults, we're not going to be able to make new friends. Like, and so we stay in relationships that are totally broken. Um, And it's sort of like, how do we do that work? Or we don't say the things to the person that we feel like we need to say because we are like too scared of the fallout. So it's sort of like, what relationships would you sever? Would you leave your job? Like, would you move? Like, what would you do with your day if you felt like it wasn't harmful, right? Like, in creative practice, we're already doing something that's very strange, right? Like, we have a job, most of us. We have all the other responsibilities that people have. And then we have this third thing that requires an enormous amount of our time, right? Which is like being a creative person. So a lot of creative people, and I think that, you know, this falls to certain people more than others, like people who really, for whom, for whom emotional labor is really required from, like, especially like them, like, don't necessarily feel 
that they have permission to take as much time for creative practice as other people do. And how does that affect us? Right. How do like the ways in which we're required to do or feel like we're required to do like certain emotional labor make us make choices away from our creative practice or away from certain system change or away from other things. Right. So if it was like if you real if you felt like you wouldn't lose any friends or wouldn't lose your relationships or that, you know, you wouldn't suffer any consequences, how much more time would you spend doing these things for yourself or like taking care of yourself? if you felt like you could do these things. So these kinds of questions are like a first thing to sort of recognize because then you start really sort of negotiating with to the extent like you're actually repressing like these things that you don't feel like you have permission to really negotiate and give them time and space to and really also recognizing where it's, where those ideas and fears are lodged in your body, right? So there, then you start like doing some releasing and it's really difficult because, I mean, the next thing that happens is not like, oh, I now feel free of all fear because it's different to work on a trauma that's over, right? It's not like we were in a car crash and now we're scared of cars and we're like working through our fear of cars. No, we're in a car crash that keeps crashing, right? Mm -hmm. We're like in a situation that continues to be risky. But it's not what I'm saying is not that like we tell ourselves that there is no risk. That's ridiculous that there totally is still risk, right? But what we what we're doing is recognizing that we're not approaching the table of decision making with like a clear with the clear head that we think that we might be. Right. Mm. We realize that we're approaching the table of decision making with a mind and a body that's conditioned against risk. And so saying, like, what would it mean to sort of like recognize that in the body and recognize that to make real change, we may need to jump anyway and realize that there's a pillow at the bottom right as opposed to like whatever we think is down there like shards of glass or something you know so it's kind of like we have to get ourselves to a place where we can reasonably tell ourselves that we're not putting ourselves in as much danger as we think we are because to be perfectly honest we're already in danger so it's not going to be worse Mm. (laughs) right you know And so many of the ways that, like, we could have changed require collective energy. You're listening to The Lit Fantastic. I'm Neil Aiken, your host, and we're talking today with the poet and scholar Linda Silva Johnson about evolution, trauma, and the body. Let's return to the conversation. One of the things that I think about a lot is like overpopulation, right? And so like, um, if you look at like the recent work of Donna Haraway or something like this, and like she has an incredible series of stories in her new book called The Camille Stories. And, you know, I'm really interested in in sort of thought experiments like she's doing, which is sort of like, what would it mean to like bring the Earth's population down to a place that's sustainable for the ecosystem? Um, and what does that mean? Um, And so, like, lots of, you know, previous uh, ideas about overpopulation have ended up being sort of, like, totalitarian, like, this is how many kids you can have, and, you know, like, we're going to control you by giving you pills and making you sterile, right, all of these kind of terrifying totalitarian ways of depopulating, but, like, what does it mean to depopulate, and what does it mean to, like, think about that as sort of, like, a creative thought experiment in which, we might think about kinship systems as something that we can build 
in a productive, horizontal way. So, like, when did we all decide that a two-person family was a good idea? We don't have the resources for that right now. Why are we so attached to that? Even the most radical people in your lives, right? Like, we know, everybody knows maybe at this point, like, someone who's, like, polyamorous or something. But how many people do you know who are literally, like, actually sitting with other people making kinship systems that say, like, it would be much better for us to have, you know, six parents and two children, for instance. Mm. Why not? No one is really doing that work. I mean, someone is, me and Donna Haraway and others, you know what I mean? But it's kind of like it's happening on paper, maybe. But for most people, the risk of... No one's even having that conversation, right? That's not even, like, part of most radical conversations. But, like, if that did come up, how many ways are you already taking risks and would it be worth kind of even going in that direction being like mom, dad, like these are my five partners, you know? <laughs> um, so it's sort of like, you know, how many people are willing to kind of think in these expansive ways that might be necessary and that also would be incredibly productive for us. Right. So like, what would it mean to grow households in a more horizontal way, grow kinship networks in a more horizontal way, and also like share labor and share resources. I don't, you know, for instance, like if I live in a building with like 50 units. We don't need to have 50 vacuums. We all live in the same building. Mm -hmm. How frequently do you use the vacuum, right? So there's these kind of like ways about sort of like resource sharing that are like very logical. And that, like, ultimately, when done on a larger scale, start to create pools of resources that allow us to make more choices, right? So whether, you know, I'm involved in sort of like a collective real estate sort of think tank, like here in New York, and, you know, it, it, it teaches people of all income, people of all classes, people from communities that are getting gentrified, what it means to, like, that don't, they don't even realize, we don't even realize that, like, there's ways of buying land together, becoming a land trust, becoming like mm. a property trust, like creating a, you know, you can actually make your own credit union. There doesn't need to be a bank. You can literally make your own, right? So it's sort of like, and then what does that mean? Like, what does it mean to pool money together in community, put it in a credit union that you have created, become the loaning operation yourself, become the operation that's building money based on interest yourself, Right. And, and and then use it in ways in your community that's productive. Right. So there's so many examples of this um, that are happening, actually. But, you know, the way that the media skews information, I saw somewhere recently a, uh, a statistic about this. And it's kind of like even if there is a solution to something that's already been like invented, like I can't remember what it is. It's some crazy statistic. It's like that you see the, you see the problem like 700 times more than the solution, like in the media, even mm. if the solution exists. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, it makes Maurice me to talk about like poetry and literature. Like, I don't know. This is exactly what I think about. <laughs> no, no. I, I mean, this is a very open-ended conversation. Uh, our, our format is is always been um, to just basically follow wherever someone's obsession goes. And, and I think, I think, what, for me, I, I think I'm really fascinated or intrigued, perhaps, by this question, which is why is it that the ratio swings so heavily towards advertising or or sort of spreading the word about the problem versus the solution is there i mean is there something in us 
that prefers to hear about the trouble than the solution? Or is it something about, is media benefiting from sort of our anxiety and fear as being a better means of selling ad space than it is to talk about a solution? I mean, I think that we're used to hearing about fears and used to hear, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, how bottle, how rubbernecking happens on the road. Like we do love to stare at a disaster, right? Because it's sort of like fascinating and it scares us and we're, we're, we're attracted to it. But I wouldn't say that we're attracted to it because we don't want to fix it. I think that like the human animal actually like is sensitized to that sort of thing so that we can fix it. Actually, that's why our bodies mm-hmm. are wired to be so interested in it because we are supposed to then help. Right. So we're wired to have interest in that, but the wiring is for that next step, but mm-hmm. we've been really manipulated. Right. So like, we don't then like, I mean, we then are kind of, you know, I think so many of us, like we see these pictures, of, like what's going on in Syria or something. And we do, we feel totally overwhelmed with like the desire to help and not being able to help. Right. And so, but then that next step of like, how now do I help? That's then where we start to, re- where the trauma starts to happen because we're kind of like, there's nothing that I can do, but there's nothing that I can do is something that equally is sort of a creation of the media because of our, lack of understanding like systems or resources or ways in which possibility is there right and so i do think that that then becomes the ways in which we're then sold that we can help ourselves and fix ourselves and make things better that's totally connected right like a solution-based media a solution and like positive things are happen based media creates a very different kind of populace like it does not create the consumer scared populace that media that is controlled by large commercial conglomerates wants and needs, right? So creating a populace that is independent, resource, understands the ways in which it can do things in the world is not remotely as obedient, as frightened, as willing to engage in distracting um, public outcry, you know what I mean? It's keeping us in sort of a state of fear is incredibly productive because Mm -hmm. like even bodily, because that bodily state of fear makes us less able to organize effectively. And it's amazing what people have been able to do anyway. But if you like, if you listen and talk to like people that are really at the center of some of the contemporary movements like black lives matter thing like these are people who are really like doing a lot of work on themselves to work through this stuff and it's telling you know because it's really something to keep yourself keep your head level in this kind of environment and it requires work it doesn't just happen because you are a level-headed person right so that's one of those ways in which language works against us that person is a really level-headed person when we say there is a level-headed person, meaning that someone else is a not a level-headed person, it makes those things qualities or conditions. It's not a quality or condition. It's work. You can become mm-hmm. a level-headed person by working on yourself, right? So whenever I hear somebody like, oh, my God, I'm not a morning person, aren't you? Well, congratulations. You just, like, stole of being effective in the morning from yourself. I promise you that you can become a morning person if you would like for that to be an effective time of day for you. Right. It's not like you don't have the capacity to have that time of day be productive for you. You have now decided that that is what works for you, but you're conditioned. 
Mm. Right. So like if you would like that to change, we can make that happen. <laughs> you know, you can make that happen. So I think so frequently sort of this categorization, this way of using language, even to talk about ourselves is mm. inadvertently a way of like reproducing and reinforcing patterning and conditioning that we don't mm. think of as being patterning and conditioning. And therefore, we don't think about it as being choice. Right. Yeah. Um, no, and hearing you discuss this, I I think a lot too about the ways in which some people will will kind of say, "Oh, I could never possibly be an artist or a writer. It takes a certain type of genius to do that," and and kind of closing the door before there's even an exploration mm -hmm. of what I mean. There's a failure to acknowledge the labor that goes into, you know, even someone with a gift requires labor and time to produce something that, that yeah, they would consider like a work of art or that they would consider this is actually good poetry. You know, I, well, I think absolutely. about the, the, you know, the sheer, you know, reams and reams and reams of paper that have been, you know, that I have gone through in the pursuit of trying to finish a particular book or trying to get a particular poem right. And realizing that, you know, if someone d just simply passes you know, says that they admire, but then at the same time, they cannot imagine it as being something available for them. I feel closest the door way too early. Sure. I mean, and I, I think that I think that artists and poets and people in the creative community are partially responsible for this. I mean, mm -hmm. as is, of course, the way that we are taught about art, right? This sort of idea of the genius, which I think is something that certain people who do make work like this and who are in the culture industry like to promote. I think a lot of people really enjoy the sort of illusion of genius <laughs> and sort of even if they know that it's not true, aren't working to dispel it. And I think that that's a mistake mm -hmm. because like, and this is a huge thing for the operating system, right? So this is the organization that I, that I run. Like part of the reason that that exists is because I really do think that poetry and art and all creative practice is for everyone. Mm -hmm. It is something that humans have done since almost as early as we were human. And it's part of figuring out who we are in the world and part of communicating to each other actually in a way that's much more directly associated with our senses and is a way that we may really be able to connect when in places and in situations that like our much more intellectual brain is not able to access right so like art and poetry and creative connection in the time I think really has potential that almost nothing else has but you know but I, but I think that you know the ways in which we make invisible process right with mm -hmm. the ways in which we like let the end result be the thing that we celebrate instead of talking about the background is part of that we manufacture that illusion. We manufacture and exalt often in sort of the illusion that we are these people with these great ideas because we've seen that in other people. And I think a lot of people then desire to have people think that of them. So there's kind of like a holding on to this illusion that I think that a lot of people who are in the culture industry want and are attached to. Because what does it mean to open up to everybody the possibility that you can also be an artist, right? And I think that, you know, one of the ways that is really kind of ugly and pervasive around this is sort of the assumption that anyone making poetry or anyone making art or anyone writing should be aware of certain things. Even people who 
really think of themselves as being, you know, radical allies, et cetera. You know, you'll hear someone in conversation being like, what do you mean you've never read X book? How could you have Mm -hmm. never read that? Oh, my God. It's so important. Well, maybe the person didn't go to school. Maybe that person has been doing labor for their whole life, right? So, like, the ways in which we talk and make our communities inaccessible, Mm -hmm. like, intellectually, to people who are approaching it from a different angle is a problem, Mm -hmm. right? I have no interest in making someone feel like they aren't meant to be there. Everyone can be there. Right. Everyone can read the books that I'm putting out. I want everyone to understand like what went into making those books. Right. Which is part of why all operating system books involve a certain amount of back matter that Mm. includes both sort of the open source radical sort of like meaning of what we are doing, which is something that can be blueprinted and anyone can do in terms of like producing books as a community, but also like interviews about process, like with the person making it, because I don't want to divide it. It isn't the end result. It's what went into making it. And anyone who wakes up every single day and writes for three hours in the morning is going to make something interesting, right? It doesn't matter if you're making it for someone else. Like how many of us who work like are totally thinking about the audience at all times? People, you know, a lot of the work that's been really meaningful to us, some of it was primarily a vehicle for the person to help themselves figure out the world or themselves, right? It's, Mm -hmm. you know, it's this chameleon, the act of like being an artist or writer, the actual act itself functions in so many ways. And it's something that anyone can do and anyone has permission to do. I mean, I love that Rock Dalton quote, like poetry, like bread is for everyone. It really is, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's another thing. That's another place where the media is involved. Right. Um, I mean, I do think this is changing a little bit, but how does the sort of, the anti-intellectualism of this current climate and the association of a certain kind of intellectualism as well as the art with the elite, Mm -hmm. right? And there's major think tanks in Washington. Oh, I can't think of the one that has been so productive against the NEA. One of the major think tanks like that, like removing the NEA funding, like a lot of what their reasoning is, is that NEA funding goes to fund like the same elite people over and over, which is not true at all. Mm. Um, You know, it's actually like every single state has NEA funding and they go to all sorts of diverse institutions and individuals. And it's actually quite amazing. But like this sort of production of the illusion of the arts being an elite thing Mm -hmm. is something that's extremely pervasive in our culture. And it's something that, like, we need to continually be working against and also trying to figure out how we can make more access for more people so that that illusion, that production, which is actually being made by elites, right, is the irony, doesn't trickle down to people who need it the most, right, who, like, need that permission the most. Well, this is this has been absolutely fascinating. And uh, I, it's a shame that we're actually running down to the end of our clock. Um, but it's been absolutely delightful to talk to you, Lynn. I, I was hoping before before we finish up, could you share, since we have been talking about poetry, um, some maybe one or two pieces? Sure. Um, the thing that I, I thought that I wanted to read, which is related to what we're talking about, is a project that I did it's called In Memory of Feasible Grace, and it was part of this series that the poet um, 
And then Inohobibi called for with her um, Pantalassa pamphlet project. She runs a press called Tea and Tattered Pages out of Milwaukee. And it sort of was like the call was sort of very vaguely like about place. But as I think about evolution and people in places, I um, I kind of made this long poem piece that also has a footnote that's as long as the poem. And I had been really thinking about the writing of the sort of futurist Italian architect Paolo Soleri. So it's about his work. And in this work that he wrote, part of what he wrote about was the sort of development of these different human stages of evolution now, for instance, like a human whose family has been in an urban environment for multiple years. Like he calls that that person the urban mutant. And I'm like mm. a fourth generation Brooklyn resident. And I've all I've always thought that like, hey, like I'm not the same as someone who as someone whose family has, you know, lived in the country forever. Like how does your body adapt, right? The mm. idea that the body is adapting. And so this piece, uh, in memory of feasible grace is about that. So I'll start by reading that. And it starts with a quote from Soleri. Esthogenesis. A process generating a reality in which all components, besides being the means to the self-revelation achievement, are also ends to themselves, which is the meaning of self-revelation. A final state of grace that only the mind can generate via evolution. I am the urban mutant, inextricable from this place Four generations before me, strap hanging when there were straps, piecework and factory wages in this teeming, seething anthill where bodies exposed to high temperatures become diamonds if they survive, visible only if you get far enough away. We are knit of the same fabric, its materials, my materials, its pressures, my native tongue. But the city, too, is not itself, was never a thing, and so you cannot be the city, even though you are. Since you cannot be the city, you cannot be. Just don't think too hard about it, and just keep moving. If you're lucky, a trickster god will get you a good deal on a place in Brooklyn, not far from train, bathroom in hall, cozy good light. Good credit only, no guarantors. Nice girls only, please. Ha ha, just kidding, except not, except we are serious, except read between the lines. No one puts what's really happening on paper here. Anyone with power learns that early. If your parents never had any, good luck with that. There's no distribution center. Just figure out how you need to dress, what armor you need wear to pass a notice taking furious notes. Sometimes passing unnoticed means your clothes will be loud. These are not the same silences. Survival is the hottest game in town. Every awning says original raise. Yes, the signs can say best pizza, even though it isn't. You're catching on. Sometimes surprisingly, the best way to camouflage oneself is to stick with the herd. Uroplatus gecko, willow patarmogen, toad, common barren caterpillar, stone flounder, great patu, Katie did. In the insect world, things are often not what they seem, especially if you're a hungry predator. For 250 million years, insects have survived because they often appear to be something other than what they really are. Is it a bug, a twig, or a leaf? Is that butterfly the bitter-tasting one or the delicious one that resembles it? Here we are the Thracian girl laughing when we thought we would be the philosopher, but who wants to be down a well? 
Look at the stars alone in your room, on your phone, so that no one sees you falter. Cry because they shine so brightly. Whisper their names under your breath or louder if you can stand it. Eridani, Akamar, the ostrich, Olax, the furrow, end of river, Cassiopeia, Erkid, Taurus, Ain, Ein, Oculus Boris, Lyra, Alaspar, the talons of the swooping eagle, Alida, Lucida Opidi, brightest of the town. Sing a song to Ursa Major, Arunvati, Alcor, Suha, the neglected one, the shards of Arabic on your tongue, mispronounced as unfamiliar as these galaxies, and yet as comforting. The city sits on top of the city, which sits on top of the city, which sits on top of the city, and it cannot not ever be a collision. A sordid density where dream calls itself a power bottom, and sometimes it is, sometimes it actually enjoys it, sometimes amongst the shut-eyed abandon, sometimes it remembers itself a dream, and sometimes my valuable body believes in love. So that's that one. That's that one. (laughs) Yeah. But you can see there that, like, I'm working Mm -hmm. with this theory of evolution of the body, right, this theory Mm -hmm. of evolution of the city, but also with um, different species and how species evolution um, and the evolution of language is, 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 kind of, is connected. Here is something called hagiography. Um, it is in the new Philadelphia Supplement Volume 2, which is coming out in a few weeks. They say he swallowed a string orchestra had the entire sky in his lungs and the disenchantments of a thousand years sneaking round the miles of small intestine, so if you stretched it end to end, he was four states of lonely highway at sunset with a melancholy score. She was known as a reader, locator of the legibilities in tea leaves and playing cards, coffee beans and cloud formations. On their travels, they made and became road. A sublimation of cornfields and strip malls, they left themselves on the shoulder of the interstate, awful bleeding. What to make of our carcass condition, this death that breathes lovingly on our necks, caressing the small of our backs, ever present. There was never life without it. It is our constant companion. Our trail guide through the great unknown, its hand our own, dimensionally unencumbered, its milk sucker, its song comfort. For those who recall, it wasn't only sun, but compost which fed the blooms. That end is only a poor translation for beginning. I thought that was a good note to end on. Yeah, it is a good note to end on. It's been a wonderful conversation, a very rich and at times dense. (laughs) (laughs) No, but in a good way, in a good way, in the sense that there's so much to, to ponder and think about now and and to carry with us as we as we go on from here. But once again, thank you so much for being a part of the Lit Fantastic. Absolutely. Thank you, Neil. Thank you for what you're doing and holding this space. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Lit Fantastic. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, you can find more episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, or on the kboo.fm archive. Or you can visit our own website at www.thelitfantastic.com. For more information about our guest today, you can visit 
www.lynn-desilva-johnson.strikingly.com. That's www.lynne-desilva-johnson.strikingly.com. And that's a wrap. Until next time, I'm your host, Neil Aiken.